Thank you, Justin. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Oh, Avon's doing great. How is the rest of you doing today? Good? All right. Okay. Uh, yeah, so like Justin said, my name's Andrew. I lead this location here, if we haven't had the chance to meet before. Mount Hope is a church that has two locations. One of them is here in Belmont. You're in it. The other one is in Burlington. They're meeting together this morning. And I'm excited to get into God's Word. We have a really interesting passage today. Uh, something I, I really feel like God will speak to us from these. We're, gonna, I, we're only going to read three short verses And I'm excited to to sort of see what is it that God is wanting to say to us. And so as we get into it, I hope your heart will be open, that you'll be asking yourself that question. What is God trying to say to me? And uh, but before we get into that, I want to know, I just want to see a show of hands. Who here thinks that they have really bad eyesight? Maybe you don't think it. You know you have bad eyesight. And just put your hand up. I'm in this category. I, as a kid, I wore corrective lenses for an astigmatism, and I, I thought foolishly that corrective lenses meant that I was going to correct my astigmatism, and now growing up, like, I would have perfect vision. I learned that that's not how that works, and the first um, driver's license I had in Massachusetts, the lady who did my vision test just, like, she wasn't hearing me when I was saying the letters because I said them right, but she was like, This guy is blind. She put a vision restriction on my license. So when I went to renew it, they're like, where's your glasses? I was like, what? I haven't worn glasses in years. So I have bad eyesight. Who here thinks they have good eyesight? Raise your hand if you've got good eyesight. All right. Good eyesight means you got to tell me the, the, the letters below the second line. I'm on stage and I can barely see what those are. Who here thinks they can read the letters below that second line? Just, just go ahead. Go ahead. And, and you guys are all over the place. Clearly, you don't have as good vision as you thought. Um, I think the prize, well, I think the prize, <laughs> everybody's just going to read the letters now. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'm right here, I'll tell you. Below that second line, it says J, T, D, I. Oh, you want the bottom line? The very bottom line is Q, F, W, L, M-U-X-A. I think the pro- whoever has the best vision, I think the prize is that next week you have to sit in the back so all of us people with terrible vision can see a little bit better. I'm obviously joking, but uh, the, <laughs> the verses that we're going to talk about today, as we get into them, we'll see we're, we're going to be addressing a vision problem. John's going to be talking about a vision problem. So we've been in this series for the last few weeks about the letter of 1 John. And the best way that I can describe what's going on in this letter, it's a very short letter, a short book in the Bible. John's trying to do two things. The first thing he does throughout his letter is he's sort of of a spiritual weatherman. He's giving us the forecast. He's saying, Monday... It's going to have, there's going to be storms. It's going to be a stormy day on Monday. Tuesday, storms. Wednesday, different storm. That storm's going to move out, but this is new storms moving in. Just look, it's storms all the way down, okay? Top to bottom, the forecast for our spiritual lives is storms. That's the first thing he does. The second thing John does in his letter is he gives Christians 
a recommendation. He gives people a recommendation on how we should handle those storms in our lives. And what he says is he says, don't go anywhere without your umbrella. It's a stormy world. Don't leave your house. As a matter of fact, even if you're inside your house, take your umbrella because these are not normal storms. These are spiritual storms. These storms can follow you inside the house. So don't go anywhere without your umbrella. And what we've been talking about for these first three weeks, I'll sort of try and spin this a little slowly here, is that this umbrella that John is sort of encouraging his people, he doesn't use the word umbrella in the letter, but, but what he's encouraging his people to do is to hold on to a very important truth. And what we learned this first, the first week in this series is that this umbrella, it, well, it sort of represents this truth about Jesus. Over and over again, Paul, or not Paul, John, in this letter, roots what he's saying in the fact that Jesus he was God in a bod on earth. Jesus was fully God. He was fully man. And he says throughout his letter that he died as an atoning sacrifice for our sin so that we could have a relationship with God. You know what that is, that whole thing altogether? That's the gospel. So John is saying, hey, hold on to the gospel. Whatever you do, storms are going to come in your life, no matter what. Whatever you do, hold on to the gospel, this fact that Jesus was here. He was real. He's like, John's saying, like, I touched him. I was there when nobody else was there. He's the real deal. And he died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins so we could have a relationship with God. And what we said over the last two weeks is that when we live under the umbrella, when we hold on to that, we experience two things about God. We experience that he is light and that he is love. And when we live under the umbrella, experiencing that God is light and that it's, he is love, what happens is it changes who we are, like in the very deepest parts of who we are, and it, it sort of leads us in a direction. God, God's light sort of purifies us, transforms us who we are, and his love sort of leads us into this, this, this way of life. And so now is sort of a turning point in our series. For, for the rest of the time that we're talking about this letter, we're going to be t sort of highlighting the different storms, spiritual storms that John is sort of warning is in his little forecast about what we can expect to face in our life. And so the storm, I, we talked about it um, already, it's, it's a vision problem, the storm that we're talking about today. It's a unique storm. It's, it's a spiritual uh, nearsightedness, a spiritual, uh, I learned this this week, the, the fancy word for nearsighted, does anybody know it? Myopia, somebody, I heard, I heard a couple of rumors, myopia. You want to sound smart with your uh, drivers when you do your driving test, you can say, I don't have any myopia, but um, they won't believe you. So John is, is talking to this audience about spiritual myopia, about a nearsightedness, a vision problem. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read these three verses. Quick, we'll just read them straight through. We need to do uh, one piece of housekeeping, which is to talk about a word that he repeats a lot of times. And then we're actually going to work our way backwards through the three verses to sort of try and draw out what is John trying to say about this spiritual vision problem that we, um, you know, that, this, that will sort of hit our lives, the spiritual storm. So, if you have your Bibles, we're in 1 John chapter 2, 
and I always recommend that you, you have a paper Bible. The verses are on the screen. You can pull up your verses on your phone if you, if you really like. There's some, I don't know. For me, I really like the paper Bible. So if you have a paper Bible, if you don't have one with you, there are some in the chairs in front of you. You're welcome to use those. Uh, I don't have the page number. If somebody has one of those chair Bibles, you can call out the page number. 1021? 1021, if you're using the Bibles under your chairs. 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be starting in verse 15. So this is what it says. And by the way, I'm reading um, a version that's different from the versions in the chairs. If you didn't know, the Bible is not written in English. It was, the New Testament is written in uh, Greek, ancient Greek. And so when it gets translated, sometimes there's little differences, but it's just follow with me. It's the same, same scripture. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away but the man or woman who does the will of God lives forever. So who here thinks they know what the word is that we need to talk about? The word that gets repeated a lot. Just, if you have a guess, just shout it out. World, yes. The word world. It's a little bit of a tongue twist. You can say that five times fast. The word world is a word that John repeats across all of his writing. John writes several books of the Bible and he uses this word. In Greek, it, it, it might be a familiar word to you, actually. The Greek word that he uses when he's writing it is the word cosmos. It's a, a, you know, a word that we've sort of adapted into English to sort of describe, like, the universe or whatever. But it's, it's the word for world that John uses, and he uses it more than anybody else who, any of the other authors in the Bible, by a landslide. Like, he uses this word, all the, I mean, in three verses, how many times? Like, six or seven times, he uses this word, world. And all through seminary, all of my exegesis classes and my interpretation classes, my professors are always telling you, they beat this into your head. When a word gets repeated, that means it's important. And the more a word gets repeated, the more important it is for us to understand what he's doing with that word so we can understand what the, the message that they're trying to communicate. And so we need to unpack this word for a little bit because there's some interesting things going on with the word cosmos. John actually uses the word cosmos in two different, opposite ways. So here, we just read, John, John uses the word, he says, do not love the world or anything in the world, just like, stay away from it. But... In the Gospel of John, there's a verse. It's probably the most familiar verse on, on the planet. John 3.16, Jesus is speaking to a, a religious leader named Nicodemus. And he... Nicodemus? Yeah, it's Nicodemus. I don't know why that sounded weird in my head. Um, and he says to him, he's talking to Nicodemus about God. He says, God so loved the cosmos. God so loved the world that he would send his only begotten son so that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So on the one hand, we say, do not love the world, John says. And on the other side, he says, God so loved the world. He loved it so much. So what's going on here? He's got a, we've got a negative sense. He uses the word in sort of a pejorative, like, 
you know, and the context is usually clear as to which world he's referring to. So when he's talking in the good sense, the good world, John is referring back to creation. If you go to the very beginning of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, the very start, God creates the world. We start to see how it happens, and he creates a little piece of it, and he sort of taps himself on the back. He says, that was pretty good. Creates the fishes. He's like, ah, that was a, that was a good fish. And, he, and then the next day, and he creates more things and more things, and at the end of it, he creates man and woman, and he goes, whoa, that's really good. Like, that is awesome. And so when John uses the word world in a, in a sort of positive light, in a positive sense, he's sort of going back to that which God created, which is he called, God himself called it good, especially sort of the pinnacle of that being humankind. So when we think about a verse like John 3.16, he's saying God so loved the people, the, the people in the world that he created, and he called very good. That, that's sort of like, Cosmo is one word to just say that sort of long phrase. For God so loved the people that he created that he called very good. He loved them so much that he would, remember the gospel, that he, Jesus, he would send his only son into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we could have a relationship with God. That's a good sense. The, the bad sense is a little bit harder to pin down, but John sort of helps us understand it in chapter five. So you might turn like a page or two to 1 John 5, 19. This is what it says. It says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world, the whole cosmos, is under the control of the evil one. So we have some, some idea of what the, the, the bad cosmos is. He says, The whole cosmos is under the control of the evil one. And the verses that we read, uh, 15 through 17, chapter 2, talk about our desires. So, this, this sort of the bad connotation, it, it's, it's a very common one in John's day, and it's also a common one in our day. It actually, he sort of inherits this use of the word from the Greek philosophers, right? Like there's very widespread Greek philosophy at this point. The Bible's written in Greek. And the, the Greeks, you know, they were trying to think about like the meaning of life and all that, as you do as a Greek philosopher. And they're, they're sort of they sort of believed that like the sort of the meaning of life, which is sort of to like transcend sort of the banal existence here on earth. They, they, because of this philosophy, the word world kind of became this stand-in word for like the icky stuff that we're trying to get away from. They're trying to sort of um, destroy desire. They try to get rid of desire. I mean, at one point, the pendulum swung to like fulfilling every desire you have, and they realized that that didn't work out very well. So they're like, maybe we should just get rid of them all. So, um, and that's actually, interestingly enough, you know, Joyce was just up here talking about Buddhism. That's a big part of Buddhism. It's like eliminating desire. And so on this side, it's just like this, the, like this desires and this, this stuff in the world that's, that's not good for us. And John, in chapter 5, we just looked at, he's saying it's under the control of the evil one, and it's opposed to God. So we have this sense is the sense that he's using here. Whenever he's saying world in these three verses that we just read, and we're going to go back through, he's saying the stuff that's opposed to God, everything in the world, in, even inside of each and every one of us, the stuff that's opposed to God, that's, that falls under the category of the world, the cosmos. 
And this, is, this isn't really a main point of my sermon, but this is a side point because I feel like it's, by John doing that, by using this word so many times, and by using it in these opposite ways, it sort of tells us something about how we're supposed to live in the world. And I think what he's tr- sort of showing us is there, there's sort of, a, it's like a road with a ditch on either side. John, because the, the world is, is, is good, God called it good, and it's beautiful, and it was created by him, we cannot totally reject the world. And I think this is, this is maybe the thing that, if we're not careful, especially as teachers and preachers, we can sort of communicate this message unintentionally. That, like, the world is bad, you've got to reject it, you've got to stay away from everything in it, uh, you stay in your Christian bubble. You know, I heard that uh, The Chosen is getting boycotted, this, this Christian show about the life of Jesus, because something happened and now it's outside our Christian bubble, so we've got to boot it out. And, and, you know, I can't listen to music that's not Christian. I can't go to restaurants that are not owned by Christian. Like, the bubble starts to shrink and shrink and shrink. And God's looking at that saying, that's not how I intended it to live. Like, you can go to the book of Ecclesiastes where this guy is trying to figure out what the purpose of life is. And he's sort of saying, like, hey, there's nothing better than to really enjoy the, the sort of the lot in life that God gives you. The, the, car, the, the, the hand that you're dealt. Like, you should find some satisfaction in that. And is this a punctuation is, is to know God. And so the, we want to avoid this, this ditch of just totally rejecting everything that's in the world, demonizing everything that's in the world. But we also have to avoid this ditch because the world and its desires are under the control of the evil one. They're opposed to God. We can't totally embrace the world either. We can't totally just say, well, God created the world and everything's good and he said it was all good. So anything that goes on in in my life or in my heart, that should be good. Any desire I have, I can just go after it. What we see in scripture is sort of like um, guardrail. What are those those guardrails on on the roads, on highways to protect us from falling into either ditch? Because human flourishing, God, God has for us in sort of in between those two. That's not a point in my message, but maybe that's something that God needed to say to you today. Um, and, and hopefully as we go through these verses, that idea of world um, can bring some clarity. Hopefully it doesn't make it more confusing. So what is John trying to say in these verses? We, we go to verse 17 and we'll work our way up. He says, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So we, we already talked about the world in this negative sense, really connecting to desires. The, the piece that, um, that, that connects it to the other side is the idea of purpose. So when God creates man and woman and says that it's very good, they, they, he puts them in a garden and he himself enters into creation to, to walk with them and to be with them. As creation goes on, the, the Adam and Eve, they get to know God better. They grow in their knowledge and love of God. Sounds a little familiar. That's the mission, part, half the mission statement of our church here. Part of the reason we exist is to grow in our knowledge and love of Jesus, of God. And even when creation falls apart, when Adam and Eve sin and, and create distance between them and God— the rest of scripture is sort of God creating a way, opening up a pathway so that they could come back 
into a relationship with God. Remember, this is the gospel that we hold on to. Jesus came as an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we could have a relationship with God. So part of the purpose of our creation, the purpose of our design, is to know God, to grow in our knowledge and our love of God. And, and that is, like, when it says in verse 17, the will of God, the one who does the will of God lives forever. God's will in creating you is so that you would know him. God's will in creating you was so that you two could have a close relationship. There could be love between the two of you. And that, he says, is eternal. The one who does the will of God lives forever. We, uh, as Christians, we, we talk a, a lot about the image of God. When God creates everything, he says it's good, but when he creates, he said, let us create man in our own image. Man and woman, let's create him in our own image. P part of that for me, I think, is that, that we are these eternal beings. Scripture says that he set eternity into the hearts of mankind. And so we are, we're designed for this eternal life, this, this life of uh, this eternal relationship with God. But this, the, the world stuff, he says in 17, the stuff that's under the control of the evil one, the stuff that is opposed to God, those desires pass away. They're temporary. They're closer to us, but they're, gonna, they're temporary. And what he's setting up here is, is this division problem. So we have eternity, and we have the worldly desires that are right here in front of us. And what he's saying is this myopia, spiritual myopia sets in when our desires fall short of our purpose. We have a purpose that's out here in eternity. We have this, this intention behind our design and our creation to be with God but we, we set our desires farther back. We set our desires on the things of this world to, to you know, get, uh, you know, a particular way of life or to, to get hold of particular possessions. We have, you know, desires that fall short of that purpose. And that is where the storm can really do damage. The this, this spiritual storm in our lives can do damage to us when our desires fall short of our purpose. And he starts to describe these desires in verse 16. So in 16, he says, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So he's starting to describe the desires. This isn't, this isn't like an exhaustive list, but this is sort of the big categories of the 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 worldly desires, the sort of short, the, what's my, nearsighted, the nearsighted desires of the world. He says, uh, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Maybe your Bible says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The, that, that's sometimes a more common way that we understand the, those verses. The, the word for desire there is epithumia. Say, somebody say epithumia. Epithumia is a very uh, hard word to define. <laughs> it's, and, and when I was looking at it and sort of trying to see what people who are way smarter than me, how they define it, it seems like it's, it's this concept of revolving around. 
the earth sort of epithumias the sun. And it, it, epi is a prefix. It sort of means over or, or like above or extra. And thumia is sort of this, this idea for a want. And so it's like this overwanting. It's when you want something so much, your just life revolves around it. You're like, oh, I got to have that car. And so you're going to do everything. Your life revolves around this, just getting the car. And this is what, des- this is, this is, in, in many ways, this is what desire is. This is what, how, this is a great way to understand desires in our life. And as people, we are desirous people. Like, as babies, one of the first words that we learn as, after mom and dad is more, more. You know, my mom, she, she is a, an amazing, amazing woman. She runs a home daycare. She basically does all of Mount Hope Kids Adventure in her living room by herself. It's crazy and it's awesome. But what she does with these little babies, before they can even speak, she teaches them sign language. And this is the only word in sign language I know. If you know sign, this is the sign for more. So babies, before they can even have the words, their brains are developed enough for the word for more, the concept is so ingrained in them that they're like, they finish their chicken nuggets or whatever, and they're like, more, 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 like, give me some more. And so it's just ingrained into who we are, right? Desire is part of who we are. We're designed to revolve around something. And John is getting at, here, here are some things to tip you off that you're revolving around the wrong thing. These nearsighted desires, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The pride of life, you're sort of like, what does that mean? Uh, the word for life there is the word bios, which, you know, we get the word biology from. It's, it's, a, it's sort of a basic word, but it also is used in scripture to talk about uh, livelihood. If you, if you know the story of the woman who put in the two coins into the offering and the, in the uh, synagogue, and Jesus says, she gave more than all the rich people who donated big sums because she gave all of her bios, all of her livelihood, all she had to live on. So it's not just like the pride of life. It's, it's more like the pride of lifestyle, the lifestyle that you're going after. And these three things are sort of, as he lists them, I sort of like to think of them as short-sighted desires. And these are um, if you look back at like the temptation of Jesus, when, when Jesus goes, before he starts his ministry, he goes into the desert and he's tempted for 40 days by Satan. Satan hits him with three temptations and you can pretty much fit him into these three categories. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Same three categories come down in, in the garden when, when Satan again tempts Eve to eat the fruit. It says that Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, useful for gaining wisdom, and uh, something, the third thing, the pride of life. And, and so she, she eats the fruit because it's a, it's a short-sighted desire it's revolving around these three things. And John is really clear in this verse. He says, those desires do not come from the Father. They come from the world. These are short-sighted desires. So if you want to diagnose short-sightedness, if you want, not short-sightedness, nearsightedness, if you want to diagnose spiritual myopia in your own life, it's always dangerous to diagnose yourself uh, physically, but I think maybe it's dangerous spiritually. We'll see. Uh, If you want to diagnose your, your own spiritual myopia, 
you got to take a look at where your desires are coming from and where they are leading you. So we, we, we're, he's saying these short-sighted desires, these things don't come from God. They come from the world. And it, it can be challenging to see sometimes where they come from just within, within us because it's just like it came from within me. Like I just, I'm hungry. I want something to eat. But if you take a second and you look at where they are leading you, it's, it can be really helpful to sort of see, am I revolving around the wrong thing here? And I, to, to sort of maybe articulate this a little bit or put, you know, put an example behind it, I thought just about the example of a beach vacation. Now, you can, you can, I think a beach vacation can fall into both camps, either camp. It can be a short-sighted desire or it can be sort of a, properly perspective proper perspective desire if you are like you're just all about traveling the world you want to see everything you want to feel sand between your toes on every continent or like you you know you just want to experience life and get all you can out of it a beach vacation could be a really short-sighted desire you're just revolving yourself around where does that lead you where does it lead you at the end of the day, to revolve around going on trips, to revolve around being at the beach, it leaves you with this continual sense of more, more, more. I, you know, like you ask Tom Brady, how many Super Bowl rings is enough? He says, one more. One more, the next one. This, this sort of worldly desire doesn't get satisfied. But a, a spiritual desire when you, when you sit down, you finally set up your beach chair, you hear the waves, you look out in the ocean, and your mind just gets blown about the majesty of God who created this place, about how unbelievable, uh, you know, his, his attention to detail was to, you know, for all the little grains of sand and how, you know, everything works together. That could be something that would lead you into the purpose of your design. To, to grow in your knowledge and your relationship with God. So now we have a desire that's actually leading you closer to God. So not, not a short-sighted desire. In that sense, you're not revolving around the beach. You're revolving around God. You're, you're, you're saying, th- th- my, the whole point of my life is to get to know God. And so when you want to start to see, hey, do I have, am I seeing things clearly? Do I have spiritual myopia right now? Where did this desire come from? This thing that I'm revolving around, this thing that I can't get out of my head. And where is that going to take me? Is that just going to take me into a bottomless pit of, of never being satisfied? Or is that going to take me to a place of like, of, of like full sort of fulfillment in life? John says to the woman at the well, or Jesus says it to the woman at the well in John chapter four, says, if you drink the water that the son of, life, or the, the son of God gives you, you won't be thirsty anymore. And she's like, Man, there's a long walk to this well. It would be really great to never be thirsty anymore. But Jesus is talking about a spiritual fulfillment. And so th- when, you, when you start to find yourself revolving around something, there's a great two questions to ask yourself. Now, uh, to verse 15, sort of where we will try and land our plane here today. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
I think there's an important question that we don't talk about enough in church, which is what we're supposed to do with the sinful desires in our lives. Because we sort of live in this tension. On the one hand, those of us who have surrendered our lives to Christ, who have, who have sort of, we call him Lord, which means you're the boss, you can tell me what to do, I'm going to follow you. It says that we're born again. Like the old self in its sinful natures, scripture says, is put to death when we, um, you know, is sort of buried with Christ and we are raised to new life. And so we're, we call ourselves born again Christians. I'm born again. What happens when you're born again, but you still find those things within yourself where you're revolving around this bottomless pit of desire? Because both can be true. And I think John Stark, he, he doesn't fully answer that question. It would be great if he did. But he starts to get an answer in these verses. And part of it comes down to the fact that these things are mutually exclusive. The, the, it's very interesting to me anyways that the verb that he uses in verse 15 is love. We, we learned last week from, from Lynn that John was the apostle of love. He was, that was his moniker throughout the first century and all these different areas. The, the, we talk, she talked about the word agape. Somebody say agape. She, she really gave us this great definition Lynn did last week, that how agape, it's right here. It's, it's initiating, it's unreciprocated, self-emptying love. It's this just sort of all-in love. Push the chips into the middle of the table. That's the same word that John uses here. He says, you do, do not do this. If you do this, the agape of the Father is not in you. So he's saying you can pick one or the other. You cannot do both. As I was reading through a commentary, there was a quote that I thought was really helpful, so I just want to read it to you. This is from Robert Yarbrough, who is a biblical scholar at a seminary in Dallas. He says, The person who sets his affection on the world cannot exercise true love for the Father. There are two reasons for this. First, authentic love for the Father requires reception of God's love as revealed in His Son through the cross. That I, I take that to mean that we understand the gospel, which means we understand how badly each and every one of us needed to be saved. The second, authentic love for God exists only when it has no essential rivals. When it comes to our relationship with God, God's relationship with his people, scripture calls him jealous. God is not open to an open relationship. God says, you and me are exclusive. There is no, I, no flirting, no, you know, we're not, we're not even going to go near to that line. You and me together forever. And throughout these verses, and, and you know, we see it again, the, the one who does the will of God lives forever. We read that in verse 17. That's, that's sort of the cure for myopia, for spiritual myopia. When, when, you're, when your vision is blurred because eternity is far off and your desires are right here, the cure is not to try and get rid of your desires. People have tried that. It doesn't work. The cure 
is to bring your desires back out in line with your purpose. The cure is to to do the will of God. The will of God is that you would know him, that you would grow in your knowledge and love of him. The way to cure spiritual myopia in your life is an increased desire for God, is an increased love for God. And the question comes, how do we do that? Like, I, I try every day, we all try, and you know, times will come where we'll recommit ourselves. We're gonna say, I'm gonna try harder this time. This week, I'm gonna do better at you know, reading my Bible and, and praying and, and you know, being involved with God in my life. And I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm, I'm preaching up here, so I'm just like going crazy. The worship team can come back up. This is where we're gonna end. How do we, how do, we do that? We, wanna, we, wanna, we, we see the problem. We know what's going on. Our desires are too close. They're revolving around things that are never going to satisfy us. How do we bring our desires back out? How do we bring our desires back in line with our purpose? John says, to do the will of God, which is to get to know him better. And thankfully, Jesus had the foresight to know that we would not be very good at that on our own. And so when he left, before he left, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send somebody who will help you. I'm going to send somebody who's going to guide you every step of the way. If you would surrender to me, I'll actually, you know, let him move in, live inside of your heart so that no matter what happens, no matter what storm comes, you will always be able to hear that voice, that you will always be able to get that guidance and help from he says, I will send my spirit. I will send my spirit. In uh, Romans 8, it says the spirit has been sent to help us in our weakness when we're not strong enough, when our efforts don't work. In 1 John, in 1 John 1, uh, I'm sorry, 1 John 4, it says that uh, we, we overcome the world. We overcome the cosmos, not by trying hard, not by recommitting ourselves every time we fall down, although those things are important, we overcome because of the spirit that he has given us. He says, the spirit that's in you is greater than the spirit in the world. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a spirit in you that is greater than the spirit in the world. The desires, the th- these bottomless pits that we tend to revolve around, there's a spirit in you. There is a power in you that is greater than the power that gravity just keeps running you around that circle. The Holy Spirit is like corrective lenses. When we have spiritual myopia, when you have an astigmatism, you get these corrective lenses. And it's, we never get to the place, at least on this end of, of eternity, where we are, our eyes are healed like an astigmatism. <laughs> like, like corrective lenses don't correct you to the point where you never need the Spirit anymore. But they do help you to see clearly. They do help you to bring those desires into, into reality. And so as we go back into a time of worship and we go from this place back into our lives, maybe you need to take two things with you. You need your umbrella and you need your glasses. Don't forget the Holy Spirit. And if you've never, you know, this whole idea of of accepting Christ or, or, you know, the Holy Spirit living inside of you is, is strange, I get that. It's a little weird. I'll give you that. But it's something that the Bible teaches. Jesus says uh, that, that he, you know, 
anyone who uh, would believe, there's John 3, 16, let's just go back to it. It says, God so loved the world, he so loved you, that he would send Jesus into the world so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life, eternal relationship with God. What, it, what scripture t- says to us, and if this is something you want to do, maybe your life is stormy right now, you're soaking wet head to toe, and you're like, I need something. I, there's no way that I can figure this all out on my own. Jesus died for you. If you would put your faith in him, that you would say, yes, I believe that Jesus was God. He came to this earth. He died as an atoning sacrifice for my sin so that I could have a relationship with him. That's the gospel. If you can say, agree to that and put your faith in him, he says, I'm going to send you my spirit. I'm going to send you somebody who's going to help you. I'm going to send you somebody who will correct this, this vision problem. And now you have the gospel to keep you dry in the storm. You can do that today. If, if you want to, I would invite you not to sing the song. You know, if, if you're a Christian here and you just want to worship God, amen. Let's sing and praise and worship God. If you're here and you're like, I really feel like I could use the help of the Holy Spirit, I would invite you, you don't have to sing. Spend some time in prayer. Talk with God. Say, I need, I, need the, I need your help. I need the Holy Spirit to bring my desires. I feel stuck in this revolution around this thing. I need your help. God, would you send the Holy Spirit to give me the power to do this? That's the invitation. And then as we leave this place, to continue on in the power of the Spirit, not to leave and take your glasses off and put them in the chair as you walk out, but to, to keep them on, to take them with you. You know, tape them to your head if you have to. So let's pray, and then we'll close in a time of prayer and worship. Dear Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for creating us with a purpose for relationship with you. Lord, help us to see clearly that eternity. Help us to see clearly the, the, your will, your will that we would come to grow in our knowledge and our love of you. And Lord, when we feel stuck, when we feel just like we can't help but revolve around these things in the world, Holy Spirit, would you fill us with power? Would you guide us? Would you, would you be the voice in our head that would lead us in the right direction? Lord, as we, as we face the storms in this life, would you help us not to go anywhere without the umbrella? This truth of who you are, And would you help us not to go anywhere without our glasses so that we can see clearly. We give you all the praise and all the honor for you alone are worthy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship.